0: Welcome to the School Business Leadership Podcast. Today, we are talking all things procurement. If, like me, you find this subject confusing, jargon-heavy, and generally difficult to get your head around, then you are in safe hands today, as my guest is not only an expert, but she is great at explaining things in a practical, relevant, and understandable way. We're talking legislation, thresholds, terms and conditions, KPIs, and frameworks, as well as what to do after you've procured a contract, and the power of collaboration. Let's get stuck in. On today's episode, I'm joined by Lorraine Ashover. Lorraine is the director of Minerva Procurement Consultancy Services, a business that helps schools reduce costs, streamline procurement practices, and save time. Minerva enables schools to conduct their procurement activities in the most compliant manner possible and ensure that they achieve the best value for money. Lorraine set up Minerva in 2010 in direct response to feedback from the school bursa community, fulfilling a long standing ambition to be her own boss in the process. Before venturing into running her own business, Lorraine worked for Barclays Commercial for 20 years. The last seven years of that are specialising in the education sector. In her spare time, Lorraine is a personal taxi service for her teenage daughter, Maisie, and loves to escape into a good crime novel. She also bemoans the demise of her beloved Nottingham Forest, which she uses as an excuse to enjoy large quantities of gin. Today, me and Lorraine are talking about the five fundamental procurement points that every school business manager needs to know. Welcome, Lorraine. Hello, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm so glad that you're here because procurement is so not my thing. <laughs> oh, it's you're not alone. You're not alone. It's not many people's thing. And when I say that I get excited about procurement, people do look at me rather strangely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it is such a relief. And I am excited um, that you are excited about it because everybody listening will get huge value from this. I get asked about procurement a lot. Um, and like you say, it's not everyone's thing. So, Just tell me, just go back a minute. How did you get into
1: procurement specifically? So as you mentioned um, at the outset, um, my background is actually in in banking, um, but but don't hold it against me. I'm I'm actually a a Mm -hmm. nice person. Um, And I I got to a point after sort of 19 years in the bank where I I was feeling um, a little bit institutionalized. I thought maybe it was time to have a change. Um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. But one thing I was very certain about was that I absolutely loved working in the education sector. And mm. um, as you mentioned, my specialism in the bank was education. Um, so I looked after schools, colleges, and universities. Um, I worked with them on their financials, on you know, sort of multi-million pound build projects that they were doing. And I absolutely loved it. I loved the education space. I loved the people that I was working with, you know, all really lovely people. And so not often when you set up a business, you'll set it up having a product and service, and then considering what market you want to serve. Whereas I did the complete reverse. I looked and said, right, I want to work um, you know, with business managers. What is it that I can do for them that is going to be helpful? And ultimately, I, you know, I'll be able to make a living um, from. And even then, so that was 11 years ago, even at that stage, lots of my clients that I was talking to in the bank were talking about the fact they, they, the budgets were being squeezed. They didn't have the money to do what they wanted to do. And it just so happened that my uh, my um, partner was um, working in procurement and I sort of was th- getting to thinking, well, hang on a minute, there must be something in this because he used to spend a lot of time telling me about how he was being tasked to save money and the projects that he was working on to do that. And, and I was thinking there's, you know, there's something there. So I left the bank and um, set up Minerva and just spoke to one of my old clients and said, look, I've got this idea for a business and... Um, will you be my guinea pig? Um, I'm probably going to ask you some dumb questions. I don't really know what I'm doing right now, being honest. Um, but you know, whatever savings I find you, you can keep. Um, but I might, you know, need to need to use a bit of your resource and, um, and that's how it started. And and as I say, that was 11 years ago and we're, we're still doing really well. So I guess it must be something that people were, were after. And I do genuinely, um, really enjoy it. (laughs)
0: It makes such a difference when you enjoy what you do. But I think, like you say, it's that perfect storm, isn't it? You enjoy what you do and it's such a much needed service and support for school business managers and schools yes. generally.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, I think that's the same for all of us. Um, you know, when you enjoy what you do, it doesn't feel like work. So, you know, mm-hmm. I anyone that knows me knows that, I mean, my laptop is virtually welded to me and um you know I I think I must be the only person on the planet who went to Glastonbury Festival um and and actually took their laptop with them because at the time I was running a really big project and I couldn't I couldn't be away from work really but I wasn't missing Glastonbury so um yeah I was sat in a in a bar at one point with my laptop so um but you know it's it it, but because I love what I do so much it doesn't feel like I'm working and the other Mm. advantage of that is is as I've mentioned earlier you know you'll know this that the school business manager and Bursa community is such a fantastic community, such a great group of people. And even though I'm not a school business manager, I do feel part of that community because everyone's so welcoming. Yeah. And I sometimes have to remind myself that I'm not a business manager, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it, you know, it just doesn't feel like work when it's when it's that enjoyable. So, um, yeah, don't get me wrong. There's still some challenges that we face and there's still some, you know, hairy problems that we get as we go along technical issues and things but um but overall it's a great it's a great space to be in
0: yeah i I totally agree the sbl community is amazing right okay procurement
1: your voice just kind of took a little dip there when you said the word procurement. <laughs> procurement. Um, yeah. If I ask you any dumb questions,
0: I'm really sorry. Um, like I said, it's not my area of expertise. I, I can navigate it. Um, so I probably will ask you some stupid questions. Um, but yeah. Okay. So you have five but, points that every school business manager needs to know.
1: Yes. Yes. And I think that, you know, I know it's a cliche, but there are no dumb questions. And I think that that's something that I hope will come across in, in what we're talking about today. Um, because, you know, people are frightened sometimes to ask for help and support. And I don't think they should be Um, Mm -hmm. with procurement because it is so, you know, in a lot of instances, it's so compliance oriented that, you know, there's lots of little technical things um, that you need to know about. And it's so important not to just make assumptions or not to just guess or hope that something is right. Um, Because that, if you do that, that's when, you know, it really will come back and bite you on the bum if you've, if you've done something and, Mm. I think one of the other things that I've noticed, um, and this is not I'm not saying this to put the wind up, people. But, you know, there are definitely more um, contractors out there or suppliers out there that are, that are willing to push back if they feel that something's not been done correctly. Um, mm. And, you know, there was a case not that long ago, um, which was uh, involved United Learning Trust um, versus uh, Bromcom. And, you know, that that was you know a really difficult situation that came about through the procurement of their MIS system, and um, you know Bromcom were really unhappy with the way the process had been run and challenged it. And you know it, it did go to court, and there was compensation paid. And it's not the first time that Bromcom have done that. They did that with um, uh, Cambridgeshire County Council as well, and there was quite a significant wow. payout that was made. So, you know, that's why I say I'm not. I'm, I'm I'm really not saying it to put the wind up people. I'm just saying it to reinforce the point that if you're not sure don't guess go and get go and get some some help from somebody or or go and ask the question um and i think a lot of that is because um i had quite a lot of clients say to me towards the end of last year um oh lorraine it's it's brilliant um we won't have oju next year because we've left (laughs) we'll be leaving the european union and oh what are you going to do in your business because isn't that all about eu procurement i said well Yes and no. It's about procurement. And actually, even though we left the EU, and even though we aren't using OJU, the official journal of the European Union, we're not using those regulations anymore. I'm sure mm-hmm. it'll come as no surprise to you, Laura, to know that the government didn't at that point say, oh, yeah, don't worry, schools, colleges, (laughs) NHS, you know, whoever you are, just do whatever you like. We've got no rules, Mm. spend money how you like. We'll have no compliance around it, no rigour. Of course they didn't. Um, What they said was that in the UK, we've got what's called the Public Contract Regulations 2015. And they have always been the law that underpins what goes on in terms of public sector procurement. And so Mm. those rules are still there. And they have had some minor tweaks to them to obviously address the fact that it doesn't reference things like OJU anymore um, and to address things like the fact that your contract notices now um, only have to but they are not advertised on on OJU anymore they're advertised on something called the find a tender service which was launched um, right. and so there's been little tweaks to reflect those sort of things but fundamentally the legislation hasn't changed and so um, you know that's really my first point that I want to make is, you know, b- b- the first fundamental point is just because we've left the EU, it doesn't mean there aren't any procurement regulations anymore. Um, you've still got the public contract regulations 2015. And even though um, they only apply to um, procurements that breach certain thresholds, which we'll, we will come on to in a moment, um, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there. It's very applicable to all procurement processes that you do. A lot of, you know, a lot of the compliance and rigor. And when we're yeah. running processes that fall below the threshold, we still use most of the compliance elements and, you know, what we put into into a, a public contracts regulation process. So I think that's the key point. Number one is just because we've left the EU, you know, don't think that there's no regulations. And so luckily for me, that is the case because otherwise those individuals <laughs> would have been right. I wouldn't have had much of a business left, would I? So. <laughs>
0: So on the ground, like you say, they've tweaked the legislation to account for the fact we're not in the EU anymore. But on the yeah. ground, therefore, everything is the same because the, that regulation is still in place. Is that right?
1: It, it is. The only the only real change that people will have seen is that um, contract notices used to be advertised on the official journal of the European Union, which is what OG stands for. Um, and there's yeah. a, a website called TED that people may have heard of, which is Tenders Electronic Daily. That's where you used to find all the contract notices and the contract award notices when they were published, because we're not using that anymore, because we're actually using our own legislation in, in the UK, we've now got um, what's called the find a tender service. And um, right. and, and actually, um, it, it's, it's, it's much better in some respects than what used to happen with um, when you advertise contract notices on OG, because what used to happen when you publish them is that for some reason, and I've never to this day understood what happens, but when you submit a contract notice on OG, it used to kind of just disappear into the EU ether for about a week. You never knew where it went. No one was checking it, as far as I know, but it just didn't appear until maybe day three, four, possibly day five, depending on which day of the week it was, what time you'd submitted it, whether it was raining or snowing, it felt like anyway. <laughs> there was no rhyme or reason to how these flipping things got published. And whereas now it's brilliant because the second that you publish on the find a tender service, it's there instantaneously. So it's, right. that's, a, that's a vast improvement on what, what used to happen. Um, so, yeah, that's the biggest change that people will have seen is that where you now... Um, input your contract notices and your contract award notices has has changed but it's fundamentally even what you're filling in on those contract notices has not Mm. changed it's just where they're published um, that has changed so that's the the biggest thing that people may have noticed and from your perspective that's a positive change as well yes it is definitely a positive change yeah you can see straight away that your notice has um, been published that that means suppliers can um See it instantly as well. Um, a lot of suppliers will be signed up to the find a tender service, so they'll get alerted uh, when tenders come up that are in their area or in their industry, um, and that in itself is good because um, the under the legislation, um, when you publish a contract notice, you need to have the selection questionnaire stage, which is stage one of the process. You need to have that open for a minimum of thirty days, and that right. thirty days starts from the moment that you publish your contract notice, irrespective of when it actually appears. So in some instances, there could have been five days where suppliers would have just been totally unaware that your tender was live because it hasn't appeared on the portal at that stage. Whereas now they get, you know, they've got that full 30 days because, you know, the second you've hit the send button, it appears. So it just gives suppliers a, a larger window of opportunity as well to see to see your tender is available and, you know, express interest and find out more about it. So, yeah, absolutely, Laura, that's a very positive change that we've we've seen as a result. Excellent.
0: OK, so you mentioned thresholds. Is one of yes. your points going to be about thresholds? Because that is something that I get a bit confused with sometimes.
1: Yes. So, yes, it is. And in fact, that is the second point that I wanted to raise, the second sort of uh, fundamental point. Um, and that is around... When you're deciding what procurement process to use, it's the whole life value of the contract that counts, not the annual value, and that's a really critical point. So it's no good looking at your let's use cleaning contract for example um, and saying okay, it's it's a um, hundred thousand pounds a year. So the threshold for cleaning tenders is. Um, Or the the threshold generally for for public um, contract regulations tenders is 189,330. So, on the face of it, you'd think, well, that's great because my annual value is 100,000. That's great. I don't need to run a process compliant with the the PCR. Actually, no. If you're going to advertise that contract and it's going on for more than 12 months, which obviously it would be, then Mm. you need to consider the whole life value of the contract you're advertising. So, With most um, schools and most procurement processes, um, the general sort of rule of thumb is that five years is about right for uh, the length of a contract. And we usually say a three-year initial term and then optional extensions of a further 12 months and 12 months, taking you up to five years. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what you need to do is you need to therefore multiply your £100,000 contract value by five, because that's how long the contract will be for. So actually, that contract is worth £500,000, not £100,000. And that's how you decide what um, process you need to use, whether it's above threshold, so above the £189,330 or below threshold. Um, And when it's below threshold, then you need to kind of look at your own internal financial regulations and say, what have we said in our own financial regs about what we do for tenders that are valued below that figure, basically? And you need to obviously make sure you follow your own internal regulations for that. Usually, you know, the internal financial regulations states something like up to five thousand. You probably don't need to do very much between sort of five and twenty five. You might need three quotes, you know, twenty five to seventy five. It might need to be a more robust procurement process. And then you kind of get to the above threshold where you have to follow Um, the public contract regulations. So make sure that you refer back to your own regulations to make sure that you're not breaching your own um, rules um, if it's below threshold. But if it's above threshold, then that's, um, as I say, where you have to look at running a PCR compliant process. There's one exception to that because obviously there has to be an exception to the rule to make it complicated, doesn't it? Um, Obviously. Obviously. um, So just when you think you've got the hang of it, then don't forget um, about school catering. Because school catering services fall under something called the light touch regime, um, which is around mm-hmm. social and healthcare type um, services of which school catering counts as one. And there's a much higher threshold for the contract value for school catering. So that threshold is £663,540. So that's a much wow. higher threshold. Yeah. So as, So, you know, that obviously gives you a bit more flexibility around school catering. And the reason they've done that is because, when we were part of the EU, there was a decision made that there were some services that they felt just weren't going to be of interest to other EU countries um, if mm-hmm. they were below a certain figure. So, if you had a catering contract that was only worth, say, two hundred thousand pounds across the five years, a- a, you know, a catering company in France probably isn't really going to be interested in bidding on that. But if you've got yeah. a catering contract that's maybe over six hundred, you know, or over seven hundred thousand well, then, yes, they might be interested in that. So that's why they set these values, really. That's the sort of, you know, the basics around it as to why they set different values on it. So do remember, even if you can't remember the values, just remember that with school catering, it is a different threshold. And just with regard to those numbers, you might think, how on earth have they come up with those numbers? (laughs) Um, The reason is because um, all of the um, values, the thresholds have been quoted in euros previously. So that's why, and, and so every Couple of years, they update that value based on what the you know what the euro exchange rate is. Um, that will obviously change moving forward. So probably next mm-hmm. year they'll revalue, and so we'll probably get a, a nicer, hopefully nice round sum. You know, like two hundred thousand, mm-hmm. or you know something that's easy for us to remember. Because it, remember yeah. when they when they change the thresholds, it takes me weeks to remember what the new figure is you know I'm always constantly quoting the wrong figure or it's a bit like when Oju disappeared at the back end of last year I must say the word Oju I don't know 20 times a day probably and <laughs> so to to get out of the habit I keep having to kick myself under the table to remind myself that it's not Oju anymore so this this podcast will be a nightmare because I've used the word Oju about 25 times already so it's gonna be back in my head again now isn't it um so yeah so I think um moving forward those threshold values will be quoted in sterling Um, and, and therefore they they will be easier for everybody to remember. So, um, but yeah, the key, the key point sort of going back to the beginning of this, this one is that it's, you know, don't forget that it's the whole life value of the contract, um, that we're looking at, not, um, not the annual value. That's, that's very important.
0: I know that this is context specific, right? And, you know, most of procurement from a school business manager point of view is probably around the three quotes process. Yes. Yes. Um, and I know that obviously when we're talking, like you say, bigger money, bigger contracts, longer contracts, where we're coming into more formal compliance procurement processes. So if we're going above the three quotes, but we're under the, the threshold for yep. PCR, am I yep. right? PCR now. Correct. Yep, well um, done. <laughs> what, are, what are the, the type of contracts that kind of fall into that gray area or that you think maybe would benefit from, you know, more stringent processes or... Do, you know, what falls into that weird area that people need to watch out for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you need to look at probably the complexity and the importance of that particular service to your school. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, some good examples of that would be things like um, ICT managed services. Yeah. Um, you know, is that being run in-house or if you're looking to outsource something like that? You know, that is such a critical service to the school that just, mm-hmm. you know, nipping out and getting three quotes for something you know really isn't going to cut it um because you've got to really understand what you know what those organizations t- can deliver for you so there r- definitely needs to be some more rigor around that and ICT managed services is a really interesting one because I would strongly advocate um getting external support with that not not necessarily from a procurement perspective but from a technical perspective about drafting mm. what it is that you want from your, um, you know, from your provider, because, you know, and this, is, it, it, this isn't one of the tips that I've got, but it's a really valid point is that, you know, if you don't write your specification really, really well, you will get a service that matches your specification, but it might not yeah. be what you wanted. And that's why it's so important to maybe, you know, if you've got internal resource that can do this, then fantastic. Um, You know, if you've got a a sort of a network manager or a technician that's, you know, able to draft up a specification, that's great. But often I find that, you know, for for a reasonably small outlay um, for what you get, um, you can get a specification, a kind of statement of requirements drawn up. And, you know, and that's, I think, so important because it helps not only the bidder to you know the supplier to understand what you want, but also it helps you to see what you're asking for and actually yeah. is the you know is the service is there everything in there that you want, or do you want to add some things in or are there some bits you want to take out and so I think you know that type of technical service is certainly something that you don't want to be um you know entering into lightly, and you probably want some support um, we've talked about school cleaning we've talked about. Catering, again, they're very tend to be um, more, you know, higher level um, in mm-hmm. terms of the spend um, and more complexity. Um, and another area around that is probably facilities management as well. So things like your planned and preventative maintenance. Um, yeah. So yeah. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of things to consider, and I think those are some of the main areas that I would say you're probably wanting to be lo- looking beyond just a three quotes type scenario.
0: So basically, just because it's under the threshold doesn't mean to say you might not want to take a more stringent approach. Correct. I agree. Yes. Having sat opposite someone and tried to unpick
1: and pick over the bones of a contract that wasn't fit for purpose, it's not a good place to be. No, it isn't. And I think, you know, that is something that, um, you know, I've got a a friend who's in the army and one of his favourite phrases is um, time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted. And I think that's such a good phrase because he's basically saying, it's great, isn't it? I use it a lot because what he's basically saying is, you know, the time you spend up front to actually kind of recon and and work out what is going on, you know, that is never going to be wasted time. It's going to, you know, some people, I think, just take the old specification out, you know, let's dust it off. They don't even almost look at it. They just reissue it again. And actually so much has probably changed in the time. Because let's be honest, it, it could well be three, four, five years even, sometimes longer, um, since you last procured that particular service or ran some kind of tender for it. And, and so you need to really be sure that you, what you're asking for is definitely what you want. Because you, you'll because you get yes. it, but it might not be what you wanted. <laughs>
0: Okay, so we've covered um, the, the changes to um, from OJU to PCR. We've talked yep. about the whole life value of the contract. Yep. What's next?
1: So I think one of the next things um, that I wanted to talk about was around um, terms and conditions. So we're talking here about uh, contracts, if you like, or legal agreements. And one thing that I see quite often um, is that people accept the terms and conditions of the supplier without question. And I would guard against that. Um, I am so aware, as I know you are, of how busy business managers are. I mean, it's just been absolutely, Mm -hmm. it's insane normally. And I just, I don't even know what the next level up from insane would be, but that's what it's been for the last (laughs) 12 months. And, you know, so the thought I'm sure of sitting down and reviewing eight, 10, 20, 30 pages sometimes of small print in a contract is probably about the last thing that anybody wants to do. Even me, I don't enjoy it. Mm. Um, however, it is critically important. Um, yeah. you know, Contracts only ever have any benefit when something's gone wrong. Because let's be honest, how many yeah. times do you look at the contract when the, when the contract's going well? Everything's going swimmingly. Yep. You don't bother looking at it, do you? You don't need to. But where mm. where you go back to the contract is something's gone wrong. And usually it's because the contractor hasn't delivered something that you were expecting or mm. that the service has dropped off a cliff and you want to know whether you can actually exit the contract, um, you know, or something's happened and they've asked something of you and you think, well, that doesn't seem right Um, you know, and then you go back to the contract and, and, and ultimately if anything ever went to court, the judge, the first thing the judge had asked for is where's the contract? What does it say in the contract? And so that's why it's such Mm. an important document. It's no good sitting there and going, well, it said in the tender document, this, I mean, I know it doesn't reflect in the contract, but we did say that in the tender document, not, not good enough. You've got to make mm. sure that it's reflected in the contract, and I've even seen some circumstances where things in the contract contradict what is in the tender. And again, right. the, con- the contract will override what has been, you know, put in the tender documents because that's what you've signed up to, basically. So, mm. you know, I cannot urge you enough to read the small print. And a bit like we were saying earlier about if you don't understand something. It's exactly the same with your contract. If you don't understand a term in the contract, don't just sign it. Go back to the contractor and say, I don't understand this term. Can you please explain it to me? The way Mm -hmm. I look at it is if you went to your governing body and they said to you, um, oh, well, hang on a minute. Did we did we read the contract? Did we not see this clause? And you had to say to them, well, I did see it, but I didn't understand it. And I didn't bother asking anybody what it meant. That's not really going to put you in a good space. So, Mm. you know, don't be frightened to push back to the suppliers and ask. And and no matter how big the company, don't be frightened to push back and say, I don't like that term, actually. I'd like that changed because that contradicts what we've said in the tender. Or, you know, I think some people are frightened because they're big, massive organizations that they don't have an opportunity to, you know, to to query these things or change them. Absolutely, you do. Um, So, you know, do make sure that you check those terms and conditions if you don't like them, ask for them to be changed, or better still, and and this is absolutely a requirement for um, a, an above threshold tender, you need to supply your own legal agreement or contract um, as part of okay. the tender pack before. So right at the very outset, before you've started the tender process, or, or literally as you're publishing your tender, part of your tender pack needs to be the legal agreement, and very few. Right. People know that, and very few people do it. But it's such a great thing to do because if you've basically imposed your own terms, it's then up to the supplier to come back to you, the winning supplier, and say, you know, well, actually, can we negotiate on any of these terms? And and yes, of course, there could be a, a negotiation, or you could turn around and say, no, when we issued this tender, we've issued our terms of business, we've made it clear what our terms of business are, and you've tendered on that basis and therefore you you know by default have accepted our our terms of business now I'm not suggesting you do that because it might be that there's some small clauses that you are happy to amend and it and it suits you know it suits both both parties to do that but that puts you in the strongest position then because it's your terms of business and you know we we have our own sort of suite of contracts that we that we use or our clients use and you know there's lots of really good terms in there clauses in there that you would never find in a supplier's contract um so to mm-hmm. give you give you a great example um going back to again probably um a cleaning contract we had an example a couple of years ago for a client where um they their incumbent um supplier didn't get shortlisted um to the next stage of the of the tender process and they really threw their toys out the pram about it and mm-hmm. um, And off the back of that, they removed the entire cleaning team from the school and replaced them with new people that weren't trained properly and, you know, didn't know the school. And it was a nightmare. But, you know, what could the school do? Looked at the contract. There was Mm. nothing in the contract that prevented the contractor from doing that. So they just had to put up with, you know, I think it was about four months until the new contract could could commence. They just had to put up with this team of people that just didn't know what they were doing and weren't cleaning their school properly. Now, the contract we issue clearly stipulates that you know, from, from the point that notice is, is given that the contract is, is terminating, that the contractor has no right to remove any individuals or make any changes to terms and conditions or pay or anything to any of the staff that are on the site without prior reference yes. to the client. And that prevents that from happening. You'll never find that clause in a supplier's contract but you'll find it in one if you issue yourself. So that's why, you know, issuing your own contract is is a really good thing to do because you can put some real protections in there for things that if you think back over the duration of the contracts that you've had, think of some of the problems that you've had over that period yeah. and make sure that you mitigate for those by, by, you know, putting it in your contract to avoid it happening again. Things like banked hours is another good one on cleaning as well. Um, you know, a lot of suppliers will say, well, we'll bank the hours that we don't do through absence and we'll do you a deep clean. Well, actually, I don't want that. I'd either like yeah. the hours to be delivered or I choose that actually I want that back as a credit in my next invoice because I haven't had the hours that I wanted. Again, that won't be in a supplier's contract, but you can put it in yours. So, you know, really important about terms and conditions, make sure that you read them properly. Don't be afraid if of are supplier's terms. Don't be afraid to push back to them and say, um, you know I want something changed and if you're above threshold you must have um, a legal agreement or a contract you know as part of your tender pack um, and that gives you the huge benefit of obviously being able to write your own terms which is which is good so that's my that would be my third fundamental point that I think people, business managers need to know See I'm actually
0: smiling now because I'm thinking I'm really enjoying hearing about this and ah. thinking I wish <laughs> I would have known that when I was doing
1: it <laughs> but this is the thing we we kind of do it day in, day out. So this is kind of like, you know, we see all these things. And, you know, like I said earlier, for some people, they're not looking. You know, you're a school catering contract, you don't want to be tendering that every five minutes, ideally every five years. And you think about what might have changed in that five year period. Whereas for oh, yeah. us, you know, for us, we're doing, we've probably got a dozen catering contracts that we're doing as we speak. And, and, and you mm. sort of think and, and all of them are different and all of them have got a different areas and different challenges and different suppliers. And so we just pick up loads and loads of stuff as we go along. And so that's the advantage that we've got, because that's all we're focused on is procurement. You know, we, we said this earlier that, you know, a lot of the business managers, you know, they've got 15 hats that they're wearing just in one day, let alone how many yeah. they might wear during a week. And procurement is just one of them. Um, you know so I think it's important to remember that you can't be expert in everything you know and um, you know and don't beat yourself up if you're not.
0: (laughs) I have a question and I'm genuinely interested in this so I'm now excited about procurement because I just want to give everyone my own contract. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. So so if it's under threshold you know is there custom and practice that you could give out your own contract on things like, like those kind of areas where it may be just under or it may not meet the threshold, but it needs a bit more rigour. Could you still do that? Is, would that be accepted by suppliers?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, there's no reason not to. If you're running, you know, as we talked about earlier, uh, perhaps a more robust process than just asking for three quotes, there's absolutely nothing to stop you um, stipulating what your terms of business are. And then it's up to the suppliers then as to whether they choose to bid or not. And that's the reason why it's good to issue them at the start, because the suppliers then understand what you're asking of them. And if they're not prepared to meet your terms, then they won't bid. And actually you wouldn't Mm. want them to because they're not going to be able to meet what you need. So um, I totally agree. I think even if it's below threshold, if you've got a set of terms that, you know, and and maybe it doesn't have to be, a whole set of terms it could just be standard terms in certain areas that you have an expectation are met and negotiables yeah yeah that need to therefore be included in ultimately included in the supplier's contract if you like but they need to be there Mm so yeah no there's nothing nothing wrong with that at all
0: i've spent most of my time involved in procurement like i say unpicking contracts that were Mm -hmm. in place that weren't fit for purpose either when they were tendered or you know they're coming up to the end of the shelf life or, you know, new management's taken over and they want to do something different, all that. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I I have sat with that, you know, stack of paper in front of me and I call it legalese, all this legalese. And I'm thinking, yeah. is that clause telling me what I think it's telling me and then getting outraged and realizing it wasn't <laughs> or thinking, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. And thinking, oh, my God, they said what? They want us to do this. Yeah, You know, so. So, yeah. So my advice is, yes, I I agree. I always literally passed it to somebody else and said, this is what I think. I always read through it. I made some notes yeah. or wrote lots of question marks on certain bits you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah please i I agree I, w- I will reiterate it. go and ask somebody that understands that you know yes. we, we can 't know everything
1: yeah and it, and interestingly, what you've just said there I, I actually re- brings me really nicely to the to to the fourth you know fundamental procurement point that I wanted to raise, and that is around um contract mobilization and contract monitoring and you might yeah. argue that this isn't part of procurement per se because. It's it's sort of when the procurement process has ended. But I think a lot of people make a huge mistake and think, oh, good, I've awarded the contract. Great. I can relax now. Oh, I'm so excited yeah. about our new bidder coming in. It's brilliant. Everything's going to be absolutely fantastic. Can't wait to, for them to get started. And oh, right, good. Right. What's my next project? What do I need to move on to next? And what they fail to do is be really involved in the mobilization of that new contract and after that then monitoring that contract moving forward and yeah you may feel this is a bit of a negative pessimistic view but I think from what you've said you probably think it's a realistic view and that Mm. is that you know when suppliers get in of course there's this honeymoon period you know usually for contracts um you know for service delivery for example you know probably six months you know you've got a good six months where everything's great and the suppliers doing everything they can to impress you and deliver on the things that they've said and and then it kind of, you know, well, they've, they've got other more exciting contracts, you know, new, other new clients that they're, that they're paying attention to. And you're perhaps not quite as, you know, you're not their biggest client anymore or whatever it is. And, and they sort of lose interest yeah. a little bit. And it's not every supplier. But I think, it, you know, to some extent, we're all a little bit guilty of, of, of that um, to some degree. Yeah. And, um, and so I think it's so important to make sure that the contract is mobilized right in the first place and that you remain really involved in that mobilization process. Go back and read the tender documents and read what it is that the client, you know, that the, that the supplier has committed um, to, to deliver for you. Because I've had circumstances where I've gone out, you know, perhaps nine months later um, to a school where they've said to me, Lorraine, can you come in? Because this contract's going really badly wrong now. I don't understand what's happened here. You know, they're not they're not delivering what they said they were going to. And, and I've gone in and, you know, having read the, re-read the tender documents and I've gone back in and I've said, OK. So, you know, you've got this issue with the staff um, not not clocking in on time, and the other staff are now getting annoyed because they're coming in on time, and some staff aren't, you know, and, and and they're saying they're falsifying records in, you know, by you know physically signing in a different time than they're actually coming in. I said, but I'm a mm. bit confused by this because in the tender, it was clearly committed that biometric fingerprint recognition was going to be used for. Um, you know, for this service, and that it was, you know, that the contractor committed that they would be supplying that to you. So why are we all using a paper based system? Oh, oh, did they say they were going to do a fingerprint recognition? Well, we haven't had that. Now, that that could have that could have solved all that could have prevented that problem happening, because those individuals that were signing in in a written signing in book, you know, and faking the time that they were coming in. I mean, that's a dis- that's a gross misconduct issue at th- that side. But the, you know, if they were using biometric fingerprinting and it's electronic, well, they can't falsify what time they're in. Their finger is on that thing <laughs> at the time they're coming in, and so you know. But the school hadn't, you know, been really that involved in the mobilisation of the contract and hadn't noticed that you know that was happening. So then I said to them, well, you know, oh, the cleaning, the cleaning's not any good around the school. You know, it's really. It's a nightmare and they keep saying that the you know they're doing these audits and they're coming out at 98% but then we're looking around the school and it's really untidy and unclean. So well when they're doing the audits who's going around with them from the school? Oh no no one no one from the school's going around with them. Well why not? Well um oh, I don't know. Go around with them. It should be your definition of clean, not their definition of clean. because it could be completely different. And you know, if you're not happy with something, then you need to be pointing it out to them, and that needs to go into the audit scores. Um, You know, these are the types of things that you need to be doing. Well, you know, we're not sure about the banked hours that we're we're getting. They seem to be saying this, that, and the other, and I never seem to understand what's going on. Okay, well, what happens when you do your 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 monthly review meetings or your quarterly review meetings? Oh no, no, we we haven't had any of those. Well, why not? You know, put those meetings in the diary for the whole twelve months right at the beginning because of course things are going to come up that mean that you might have to shift it but you'll only shift it by a day or two because once it's in the diary you will have that meeting generally speaking if it's been in the diary people won't cancel it they might they might put it off by 24 48 hours because of an emergency but they certainly won't you know cancel it entirely and so you know these are things that are all part of i still see it as part really of the procurement process because in order to make sure that what you've just procured delivers what you want it's a bit like we said right at the beginning make your specification really accurate because you know if it's not you'll get a service it won't be what you want and out the other end make sure that you get involved in the mobilization make sure you read what the the contractor said they're going to deliver to you make sure you have regular meetings with them and make sure that everything they committed to in the tender is is delivered because you know that's all part and parcel of your procurement process. And where I do see um contracts that are going wrong, it's not always the case, but often it's the case that, you know, nobody's really been paying attention to it. And so the contractor's just gone off and done whatever they wanted to really on in the absence of anybody um, you know, challenging them or making sure that they're doing their job properly. So I think that is a really important part of that procurement process on an ongoing basis. I agree. And, you know,
0: that situation you were talking about, I think I've landed in schools. I've always worked in challenging schools, in challenging circumstances, um, problem solving, troubleshooting, that kind of thing. So I am normally the person that goes in and says, well, why haven't we been doing this? You know, the contract has been quite complacent because they've never been checked up on. I'm saying, get the contract off the shelf. Let's dust it off. You know, layers of dust on it. Yeah, This is what you should be doing. No one's ever done it. So yeah, I've always found it from that perspective. And also, I think you mentioned like this, honeymoon period as well and you know everything's fine when everyone's working in the same way and like you say we're talking five-year contracts but say in year three your contact or person on the ground that you
1: work with leaves and takes another job that can also create an issue can't it definitely definitely and that's why it's really important to have everything in writing um you know even if it's just an email because once that individual's gone then if if something's been agreed verbally and you've Mm. got no record of it the next person coming in a might not know about it but b worse still might say well there's no way we'd agree to that um you know and and actually backtrack on it so that's why it's important to get things in writing in those sort of scenarios to make sure as you say if somebody does move on that you're not left thinking ah probably should have made a note of that somewhere
0: (laughs) yeah and customer practice develops over time doesn't it so especially if you because You've got contracts and you've got people, and those relationships develop. And that person might say, "Oh, yeah, I'll just do that. It's not a problem. I'm doing it while I do this." You know, so but like you say, the contract is the thing that lives, and and you know, it, yes. everyone refers to if there's an issue. So yeah. capturing all of that information is important,
1: and that's why I think things like key performance indicators. Um, again, you know, I, I was out on a site visit once for for an IT managed service, and I think one of the suppliers. We were talking about KPIs and he said, well, you know, if you need to refer to the KPIs, something's gone wrong. You know, it's a bit like we are talking about mm. earlier with the contract and, you know, and he's absolutely yeah. right. You shouldn't really need to be referring to KPIs um, unless something, something has gone wrong. But it's so important to have them, so important to monitor them, make sure that they are, yes. you know, doing what is said. Because, and again, one of the things that um, we have got in our legal agreement is that a persistent failure to meet the KPIs um, does actually constitute a material breach, which allows you to right. terminate the contract early. And again, you won't find that in any supplier contract. Um, no. So if you think about it then, if you start monitoring the KPIs and actually they're not performing to those KPIs and they persistently fail to, to meet them and or rectify them, then you've got grounds to terminate. If you don't have that in there, it's actually quite difficult. If you look at most contracts, poor yep. performance is quite hard to evidence. And even then, mm-hmm. poor performance isn't often a grounds for termination. So when you're getting in that situation, it's incredibly hard to get out of it. So that's why having something like KPIs is really important, because if something does start to go wrong, then that's one way of monitoring and one way of potentially being able to terminate your contract early, because it's actually remarkably difficult to get out of contracts once, they've, once you're in them.
0: It's a bit like we were talking about terms and conditions before. I think, you know, like I said, I've more negotiated with difficult contracts or, you know, ones that have already been in place. But I think sometimes you think there's a standard set of terms and conditions and it's a case of who are they more favourable to, where you don't often think, well, actually, I can add as many terms and conditions as I want, you know, that... favour us, you know, it's not just this list of terms and conditions, we can have this one, we can have this one, we can have that one, like you say, suppliers wouldn't put certain ones in that you've referred to today. Exactly. So there's definite power in that.
1: And I think, you know, it's important not to go completely over the top with it. Because obviously, if you put some, if you put too much in, a supplier will look at it and go, yeah, you can sling your I'm not Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not agreeing to those terms and conditions. They're far too onerous. So I think you need to make yeah. it fair. But I think you know it's a yeah. natural thing, isn't it? that suppliers are going to make sure that they're protected as much as possible if it's their contract. So I think you they're know, not going to help you out, are they? Of course, of course <laughs> they're not. Of course they're not. But it's funny because sometimes I look at contracts and I see typos in there and I see things like there was a contract I read the other day and it actually, in fact, I did one of my little MT squared episodes on it where. If the client had signed up to it, it gave the um supplier the right to access. I think it was for um, some sort of asset management software, we'll say, um and it, it gave the company the right to access all the information on the system and use it in whatever way they wanted. Like there was no. Oh my word! I know. I was just like, surely, <laughs> surely this can't be right. There must be some like, like GDPR legislation or some sort of legislation that they can't just. Go in and use it. But that's what the clause said. Now, maybe it's not what it meant, but it didn't, you know, and in the same in the same contract, there was a typo that completely changed the meaning of the clause. And, and this is a really big company as well. And hundreds of, you know, organizations would have signed this contract. So I find it staggering mm. that no one had picked it up. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, just that's just an aside. <laughs> It's interesting though,
0: listening to you talk about procurement in terms of, you know, um finding, you know, a supplier and getting the terms and conditions, the honeymoon period, possible issues. I'm HR trained. And the way that you talk about it is a bit like when you get a new employee. Yeah. You know, if you don't manage them properly, if you don't have the right terms and conditions, you know, if you're not monitoring them, you know, if there's an issue, what do you do? It's yeah. very similar, isn't
1: it? It is, yeah. If you don't do the right induction, you know, for them. It's all yeah. those sort of things, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's very similar, very similar. It's a good analogy, actually, because so for those that are you know, more in the business manager role, more HR inclined, that's a good way of perhaps thinking about how to, how to approach it. Yeah. It's not a
0: person, it's a company, but the same principles
1: apply. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And companies can go off paste just as much as people can.
0: Oh yes. Yes. I've not made myself very popular dealing with contracts in the past, so I'll just leave that there. (laughs) We'll park that. I was going to say, I'm just going to say the words PFI um, oh, and we'll move on. Oh, let's move on quickly, <laughs> quickly.
1: Okay, so you have one more point to make. I do. And that is um, the, the, the phrase stronger together. And we, we see it a lot in lots of different contexts, but I think it works so well when it comes to procurement. Um, collaboration around procurement is so beneficial um, and, and not just to leverage sort of better value because maybe you are bringing together a bigger spend. I mean, that's one element of it. But really importantly, in this, in this environment at the moment, it's actually sharing best practice. It's working together. Mm. It's, it's, you know, basically sharing the workload, really, um, so that not any one individual is necessarily burdened with all of the workload. Because, you know, if I'm running a collaborative tender process, um, maybe for a group of schools because we quite often get groups that work together. And, and when I say groups here as well, don't don't be don't have any limitations here. Um, you know, we've we've run groups. Um, we did a catering tender, but we've done a couple of phases of it um, in in the Berkshire area. And we we had the groups involved: um, multi academy trusts, single academy trusts, maintained secondaries, maintained primaries, and covered three different local authority areas. And, wow. and, and two different contractors. Um, so, you know, don't let those things be a barrier to you working together. You know, you can get all those sort of, you know, people together and those different types of schools together and, and work. And then what you find then is that, you know, if I'm running a procurement process for one secondary school um, for, for their catering, for example, it's not going to be double the work for me to run that tender process for two. Nor is it going to be yeah. triple the work if it's three. Every time you add more to it, there's an economy of scale where, for example, um, you know, the presentation day that you hold where which is the best bit of catering um, contracts, which is where you get to do the food sampling. You know, I don't have mm-hmm. to have if I've got 10 schools in my collaborative group, I don't have 10 separate presentation days. I have probably yeah. one and I might have different suppliers in throughout the day, depending on who's shortlisted um, for each of the different schools. but. Essentially, I can get that done in a day, whether that's one school or whether it's 10 schools. And there's, you know, writing the tender documents. Yes, of course, there's extra work involved because there's extra information that needs to go in the tender documents. But it doesn't take me 10 times the amount of time to run it for 10 schools versus one. So, you know, working together, you know, really helps to cut down the time. You, You know, you pull your resources in terms of your expertise. If you're not particularly expert at procurement, then, you know, maybe somebody else in the group is. But also I, I've seen this so many times where someone says, oh, I've just noticed that in the tender documents, it doesn't say about this. And um, Should we add this in? And then everyone else in the group goes, oh, my God, thank God you mentioned that. Yeah, that's a yeah. really good point. Come on, but I'm glad yeah. we didn't miss that. Now, if that person, if they hadn't been working together, you know, it's a strong possibility that maybe nine out of the 10 people in that room would have not added that into their tender process and would have been really quite critical So, you know, having that sort of hive mind, as we like to call it these days, don't we, of, of, you know, all the people in Mm -hmm. the room is incredibly beneficial. Um, So I think working together, collaborating has masses of benefits when it comes to procurement.
0: Can I ask you, the last point we talked about was this ongoing contract monitoring and the relationship and monitoring the KPIs. Mm. In that big group, I get that the actual process would be straightforward. You know, like you say, you know, for one, for 10, it's the same. Yeah. But how does that happen? So the tenor process is done, the contract is in place. How generally do people set that up in terms of contract monitoring, you know, making sure that, you know, everyone's getting what they asked for? Yeah. Who
1: kind of takes the lead on that? Well, that then comes down to the individual school, if they if they want to, or they can engage, you know, there's lots of companies that do contract monitoring. So you could ask somebody external, you know, like ourselves, or, you know, there are specific contract monitoring companies, um, for example, particularly with catering, there's very specific organisations that can do that type of um, monitoring. So you can either get an external resource to help you. Or you can do it yourself because, you know, within the tender process, even though you've run one overarching process, there's kind of almost 10 mini processes that have sat underneath that. And in those mini processes, you're making sure that whatever that individual school wants is reflected in that tender process. So it could be that, you know, when we get out the other end, that there's a core set of key performance indicators that um, the contractor has suggested that they'll be putting in place. And then once the contract's mm. awarded, that actually then those get tweaked for the individual schools. So it might be that they'll go into the school and, and the school would say to them, well, actually, this KPI that you've talked about here, um, that's in your standard set of KPIs, that's not really relevant for our school. However, what is relevant is this. And I'd like that included. And, you know, most contractors right. are very happy to, tweak their KPIs to reflect what, you know, what individual schools need. So, you know, it's it's like having one overarching process, but with the kind of each school is still an individual school within that. Um, and there'll be an individual contract and they would be, you know, individual KPIs. And so you can make sure that you're getting all the benefits of working together, but still being very, you know, still reflecting your individual identity very clearly within that process. And keeping that and keeping that control. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I think part of the danger where we see, um, you know, I'm not I'm not saying something that I wouldn't say publicly to anybody here. I can't stand frameworks. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think they, they've got their place. They, they're absolutely there are some good ones. And there's some and there's some spend areas where frameworks work incredibly well. Um, but I think the danger, particularly with maybe, say, for example, if you've got a local authority framework um, that you buy through the SLA um, often, I don't know why they do this, but often they'll only have one contractor on their framework. It's like a sole, you know, it's let to a sole supplier, which means that if it's not going very well, there's no one else you can actually even go to off of that framework. But also the problem you've got in that scenario is that the customer, as far as the contractor is concerned, the customer is the local authority. It's not you. Yeah. And so yeah. they will be reporting back in to the local authority on what the local authority want them to do and what the local authority has set, so it might be the KPIs that the local authority has set, that contractor then is very often not even remotely interested in what's going on at the individual school because they don't really care because they're not being monitored on that. Um, And so that's why I often find that those types of processes, um, you know, you often find that schools, you know, are unhappy because you know, their feedback is being ignored because it's not really relevant to the contractor. They're only interested in making sure that the local authority is happy. Um, So that's where they don't work so well. And that's where that kind of joining together approach doesn't work because the schools aren't really treated as individuals. They're just treated as, well, they're part of a big lump of schools that are being let through this council, basically.
0: And I know it's hard as well, having lived through academy conversion with some of these contracts. Um or legacy contracts, if you like, um and as part of the kind of conversion, they've been transferred over. Yeah. Um and dealing with that is difficult because they're used to dealing with the local authority and and, and you know they're still in the room, but actually then it's the academy or the mat that's the
1: the client and it yeah. gets very murky. And also, I think there's always a fear, a very understandable fear, of moving away from the protection of the local authority. Yeah. It's a bit like, well, what if something goes wrong? you know are they going to support me or am I actually going to be left out on a limb because I dared to move away from the local authority provision and you know it's interesting because I think you get sort of different and this is the same in in every walk of life every industry uh, every individual that you'll get some people that will be what I call the pioneers and they'll be the ones that'll be like right so that you know i think there's a better deal anyway. out here i'm going for it you know feel feel the fear and do it anyway isn't it and it's like they go off and do it and they're the pioneers and then you'll get the fence sitters you'll get the ones that will go mm, i'm just going to have a little we'll watch and at- see how it goes yeah i'll just have a little i'll just have a little looky see because i'm quite interested in that that looks like might be quite good but i'm not quite ready for that yet so i'll just have a look and see how they're getting on and if it all goes yeah. well then i'll have a go and then and then you'll get the people that i say they're the they're the people that are getting splinters because they're just going to sit on the fence forever and they're never going to get off it <laughs> yeah. and, and there's nothing you can do for those people <laughs> but it's yeah it's hard it, because i know
0: with some of them and i'll come back to hr you know with a hr service some have really good hr slas some yes. not so good and i've spoken to quite a few people who want to move but the local authority say if you move you know we're the employer um, and if you take someone's advice and it doesn't match what we would have told you, then we're not liable for if yeah. something goes wrong. And yeah. that scares people, doesn't it?
1: Yes, it does. It does. And I think what's interesting about that, though, is that um, sometimes it's quite useful then to, um, with the legal agreements that you've got drawn up, is actually have them run past the legal services. Because a lot of people still buy into the legal services, um, you know, SLA from the, from, from the council. So get the legal services to check over the, um, the legal agreement. Because that you know, that yeah. then that then also helps because they they've got visibility then. And and before you sign up to that contract, they can they can point out to you anything that, you know, they feel you shouldn't be signing up to. So that's the way that they can support. Um, but yeah, it's it is an interesting it is an interesting dilemma and I can understand why people would like the comfort. And and I think particularly during this period of a pandemic, um, you know, yeah. obviously there have been a lot of challenges around contracts, um, you know, in, in terms of the delivery and what you should pay and what you shouldn't pay and grey areas in, in guidance and, you know, and and in in that scenario, possibly having the protection of a local authority in that may or may or may not have been beneficial, but it certainly wouldn't have, you know, Mm. been harmful. I don't think. Shall
0: I assume that there will be a pandemic clause in lots of these procurement contracts now? (laughs) Funnily enough. Yes.
1: Um, it's (laughs) yeah. Uh, we, we had some clauses written actually, um, for our mainly for our catering contracts, because been, they've been the ones that have been most troublesome when it has come to the pandemic for obvious reasons. Um, cleaning mm-hmm. contracts haven't really been an issue because in fact, cleaning contractors have done really, I don't mean this in a bad way, but done really well out of the situation. It makes it sound like they're, you know making hay while the sun shines They just needed they just just needed loads more (laughs) cleaning exactly so there's not really been an issue for them because um a lot of the time they've been able to furlough staff and and then you know people have when they've been coming back have needed more cleaning not less i think there are more day janitors employed in schools these days than there's ever been um as a result so you know they've been less problematic icc managed service contracts they've been less problematic because you know they've needed more yeah. support in actual fact with all the remote learning and trying to gear everybody up to be working from home and this sort of thing. Um, but the catering contracts have obviously been the one where the catering contractors have been hugely impacted because literally their service has just disappeared. Um, and so, yeah, we, we have been um, including pandemic clauses. Sometimes the clients have been proactively putting them in. Sometimes they've not, but then the contractors have come back mm. and we won't sign it unless there are pandemic clauses in it. So you're absolutely right. They are, pretty much a staple although and it's interesting because there's been a discussion going along now which is getting very technical but about whether force majeure can actually apply to a pandemic anymore because you know force majeure is usually for unforeseen events yeah can we now count a pandemic as being unforeseen because Mm. we've already had one or do we have to go as far as saying that the COVID-19 panic could be a pandemic could be foreseen but something else might not be So you know, this is what I mean about this. You know, even just the tiniest little things like that. You know, that's just one clause in in you know in in hundreds in a in a contract. But even that, just that little example I've given there, could be, you know, making the difference between a problem or not in your in your contract. So again, even more legalese to read and understand. I hate reading small prints. I don't know why I've picked a a career or a a business that involves reading loads of (laughs) small print. (laughs) Just as well, I'm all right at it, really, isn't it? Even if I don't like it.
0: (laughs) I do have a question. I I don't want to take you too far down because I know, like Mm. you say, you've mentioned frameworks Mm. and you said some are good and some are not so good. And I'm sure people listening would go, which are the good ones?
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, I I think one of the areas that, I mean, I think frameworks are really good when you're buying goods. So if you're buying products, then they're great because you can be really specific yeah. about what you want and, you know, set that up and you want a set number of them. And, you know, so they're fantastic for things like, if you're buying widgets, you know, or laptops or, you know, things like that that are good, so I think they're great for stuff like that. I think where they're mm-hmm. not quite so good is around services. Um, I, I tend to find they're not so not so uh, flexible around those i mean they're getting better because they, you've now got what we call um dps dynamic purchasing systems and those frameworks allow contractors to be added and taken off of frameworks um whilst they're ongoing which is a which is a vast right. improvement because otherwise you end up in a position where a framework is let for four years and you've got the same suppliers on it and you know some of them might be good some of them might drop off a cliff like you say they just could be someone personnel might change um you know, and then you might have a real good new player in the market who's not on that framework as a result. So, you know, that's where mm-hmm. I find them a little bit inflexible. Um, but mainly the reason it's not that I don't like them per se, but w- what I think it is is that when you're using a framework, there's they're very they can be very complicated and you don't really get the support because the framework owner is just there to manage that framework. And they could have hundreds of schools using that framework and they've not actually got the time to dedicate to you individually so they'll give you templates to do things but they won't actually write it for you um and they might give you a bit of advice and guidance but often when i speak to people they're ringing me because they're saying they kind of would like to use a framework but they they find it too complicated um and there just isn't Mm. the support there to help them so i think um i think but before we finish i know we're going to i think probably have a chat about areas where we can get support and i think there's a couple of suggestions that i can make on that that might that might help along those lines, but I think the other area where um, uh, frameworks are particularly good um, is Reaper graphics. If you're looking at your MFDs um, in a school, yeah, I, I don't know why it is, but again, I suppose perhaps because it's a, more around a product base um, rather than necessarily the service, although of course there's a service element. Um, but Reaper graphics um, frameworks tend to tend to be really good. I usually recommend people mm. use them actually rather than using us bizarrely for that um, for that area. <laughs> Yes. Don't give me any work. I, I suggest you go and take your business <laughs> elsewhere.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I did want to touch on frameworks because it is, again, you know, like you log onto the, you know, the DFA website and it just looks all a bit mystical, doesn't it? There's a long list. There's a lot of options, you know, like you say, there's templates, but there's not much guidance around it. Yes. You know, when you're digging into the
1: detail. And I think that's what puts people off. It really does. Um, it's that complexity around it and the lack of lack of support. Um, You know, but there are some, you know, there are some great frameworks out there. And, you know, there's if you speak to the framework owners, they're all fantastic and they really know their stuff. And, you know, I do having said what I've said about them, you know, I do always explore them as an option because I think it's wrong to rule something out before you've properly explored it. And so I think, you know, I do regularly speak to I regularly speak to people at YPO or ESPO. Um, not so much Crown Commercial Services because I don't have so many contacts there. But you know, certainly YPO and ESPO. Um, you know, I talk to them regularly about what's going on and what frameworks they've got, and you know, looking to explore that as to whether that is an option. Because particularly if you're short of time, frameworks could work really well for you because they are already compliant under the public contract regulations. So that's yeah. the sort of first stage of doing the due diligence around the organisation and that. Um, legal agreement side of things that's all taken care of for you so there's some protections Mm -hmm. that you get and there's some time savings that you get so they definitely have their place I mean I suppose you wouldn't expect me as a procurement consultant probably to you know wax lyrical about frameworks because I suppose Mm -hmm. they're my competition but I would always consider them I think it'd be wrong not to um, especially in certain circumstances and for certain products but hopefully that's given a bit of a flavor of some of the areas where I think they work
0: That's been really helpful. And I have to say, I've enjoyed listening to all of this. I feel like I am literally on a procurement course. So I hope everybody listening feels the same way. (laughs) So, have you got any final thoughts, anything you want to leave our listeners with?
1: Um, I think I'll probably go back to something that I mentioned um, earlier on, which is that, you know, please don't worry if you don't know everything about procurement. You know, you, as business managers, you've got a huge Remit in your role, and you know there's so much that you need to do. And if you if you don't like procurement, and lots of people don't, you're not going to be really minded to do it, and you're probably therefore not going to be quite as good at that area as you might be in in other parts of your job that you really enjoy. And so I think don't be frightened to ask for help and support um, if you need it, um, and, and please don't think that you're the only one that is asking this question, I can absolutely assure you that we've got loads of people speaking to us um, all the time asking questions. And we're really happy to, you know, if someone's got a problem or a question, you know, just ring us or drop us a, you know, note on our contact us page because we'll happily answer mm-hmm. questions from people. I would far rather spend 20 minutes, half an hour talking to somebody um, and guiding them to make sure that they don't go down the wrong path than I would for somebody mm. to be sitting there and going oh well, I don't really want to make a wally of myself and phone up and ask because it's probably a really stupid question I can assure you we'll never make you feel stupid because you know what you're asking I'll bet you any money you like someone's asked it before um mm. so please you know be comfortable get get help and support and and I think you know in terms of help and support and you mentioned training there Laura and it's interesting because i know i said to you when we were sort of preparing for this that you know procurement training is something that i'm really aware that there's a real lack of um, yes. and you know i speak to people a lot and they say well where do you get any training and it's really it's kind of a bit here and a bit there and you know there's not really anything particularly um you know joined joined up when it comes to that so it's definitely something that i think we need to need to look at um, but in terms of what support is out there um, you know, there are the regional buying hubs. Um, so there's one in the southwest and there's one in the northwest at the moment. Um, however, there's been a consultation mm. that's just closed, actually, about expanding those regional buying hubs UK wide. And if that happens, right. then that means that there'll be full coverage by those regional buying hubs. And they're there to offer help and support as well. So they're another port of call that you've got if you're in those areas at the moment and hopefully soon to be across the UK. Um, you know, they're there to give you advice, support guidance, particularly on complex procurements. They will advise you about what frameworks are out there that you can use um, and that sort of thing. So, you know, that's one source of support. Um, you've got the DFE Buying for Schools website. Um, there's lots of great guidance on there, lots of templates and, and flow charts and things that you can use. That's another really good source. Um, we use um, an organisation organization called Achilles. Um, and they are um, public sector procurement experts. They run lots of courses. Um, and, and it's it's interesting doing their courses because you get people from all different backgrounds. So you'll get some people from the MOD, some from the NHS, the fire service, the police schools. You know, so there's a whole range and you and you get to hear a lot of different um, sort of procurement um, projects that are going on. Um, but they're really good. I did some training with them recently, Funny enough, on contract notices um, and making sure they're accurate. Um, so that's another good source. Um, the ISBL. They're currently running a course. uh, Well, they've got lots of courses. They run the ISBL and procurement is an element in many of them. Um, So if you're doing any of their Mm. courses, you may find that. But also they have got a a full um, SIPs course, so the Chartered Institute of Purchasing and Supply. Um, They are running a course which is purely focused on procurement because I think what's happening now is, especially as multi-academy trusts are getting bigger, that a lot of them are having people that are becoming much more dedicated to procurement. So that qualification yeah. is, and course, is really relevant, but that is very full on. You know, it's, it's, it's reasonably costly and it's, it's very focused and, and quite lengthy. So that would probably not necessarily be something you want to do unless procurement was going to be a big part of your role. Um, mm. And then the other source I'd say is really good is um, uh, Mills and Reeves, um, which are a, a firm of lawyers they run um, the procurement portal. So it's www.procurementportal.com. Um, and that's got loads of really great advice, guidance, templates, flowcharts. charts. Um, you can, you know, ask them questions. Um, and that sort of thing is an FAQ section on there. So again, that's another really good source of, of information. So like I say, there's nothing really cohesive that's all kind of pulls it together and does training, but there's lots out there. It's just a case of making sure you know where to look for it, basically. So hopefully those few things are some good pointers for where people can find some help.
0: And obviously you are our procurement specialist today, Lorraine. So where can people get in touch with you? Because I'm sure that they want to get in touch. You mentioned they could go to your contact page, but where can people find you?
1: So people can find me. Um so the website is www.minervapcs.com. Um loads of great stuff on there. There's lots of um webinars um that you can access on various different topics. Um I do little MT squared videos of every every week I do a 2 minute tactic about procurement um which I'm mm. I'm longing for the day when um Lockdown is over and I can go out and about because I used to do loads of them on location. But they've been really—I mean, the tips—the tips have been great over the last twelve months. But they've been really dull background because it's been the same background pretty much every week. (laughs) Whereas I used to like it when I could go out and i have been seen—I'd be seen in all sorts of different places recording them. So um, you know, I'm longing for those days. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of sort of help and support on there. Um, also, um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Lorraine Ashover. Um, and I'm pretty um. Pretty visible on Twitter, as you'll know. Um, and I'm it's at Minerva PCS Boss um, is my Twitter handle, and then at Minerva PCS is the is the company um Twitter feed. So that's another good um place to find me. So I like I like hanging out on Twitter. Yeah, I love being on Twitter. It's yeah. One of my favorite places to hang out. Exactly. And then yeah, email is Lorraine at pcs.com So if people want to um, email me, and I'm guessing phone number will probably be on somewhere on the information you send out, won't it? Yes.
0: Yeah. I'll make sure it's in the show notes so people can basically just
1: find you with the click of a button. Yes, That is the plan. Lots of ways to get hold of me.
0: Um, I have to say I have really enjoyed this and I know that anyone who asks me about procurement from now on, I will just point them at this podcast. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Listen to that and speak to Lorraine Um, because like you say, we can't be experts in everything and I know we beat ourselves up about it, but you know, Some things we're not experts in, some things we're just not, you know, procurement I know is not my bag, you know, I'm I'm more of the HR side of things. But no, I have found immense value in it myself. Good, I'm really pleased. at least I would be able to, if someone gave me a test on it, I think I'd be okay.
1: Good, perfect, (laughs) that's excellent. Well, yeah, I mean, we're the opposites because I'm not a massive, you know, I'm not massively great at HR, it's one of my probably weak, you know, weak weak spots. Um, and, and that's, and that's my point is that, you know, don't, don't feel that you've got to be an expert and don't feel that, you know, you can't pick the phone up and ask a question because, you know, I'd far rather someone ask me something that they maybe feel is a bit of a silly question. But as I say, it avoids them making a mistake or causing, causing themselves a problem. So, um, you know, we are here to help. Not everything, you know, not everything's a chargeable service. You can pick the phone up to me and have a chat and that's absolutely fine. <laughs>
0: It's one of those things, isn't it? Because before I was thinking, oh my God, there's so much I don't know. And now I think, oh, I actually know enough, but I'm now more aware of what I don't, I know
1: what I don't know, if that makes sense. It does, it does. And that's the thing, and we're still learning. I mean, I've been doing this for 11 years now and still every week I learn something new um, that I didn't know before. And it's all just gets packed in there, you know, ready to be pulled out at the relevant moment. And so that's why it's important to, you know, to seek that expert help and support because there may well be something some sort of thorny issue that you've got that I've probably come across before. And if I haven't, I kind of like it because I'm like, oh, well, that's an interesting one because I've never come across that before. (laughs) How do we solve that problem? Um, You know, it's all good stuff. So yeah, I've either got the answer, I'll know someone that's got it or I will go and find it.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Lorraine, for joining me today. I've really enjoyed it. And like I said, I can't wait for this episode to go out so I can point people to it. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this
1: this great knowledge that you've got of procurement and your passion for it oh, as well thank you so much i've really enjoyed it thank you for the opportunity
0: i know we've covered a lot in this episode but i hope you got as much value from that as i did lorraine really knows the stuff as you can tell so if you have any questions at all please do get in contact with her you'll find the details in the show notes on my website at www.ljbusinesseducation.co.uk Remember, this show is available in all of the podcast directories. Just make sure you hit the subscribe button in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. And if you listen to today's episode and you're on social media, let me know what you think. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under the same name, at Laura LJ Business. See you next week.